For journalists all over the world, reporting true crime stories is a day-to-day -day reality. But what do journalists do when that reality is so dark that it feels like we've reached a new depth of human cruelty? For the first time, a network of 600 of these journalists have invited us into the darkest recesses of their world. They've shared stories of some of the most disturbing cases ever reported, past and present. From Podomo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A note to listeners. Due to the nature of their subject matter, some stories discuss suicide, sexual assault, and may include detailed descriptions of violence. Please take care while listening. Butchered in the Valley She could barely breathe in the chimney. The stones pressed in on all sides and squeezed the air from her lungs. She hadn't had time to fully extinguish the fire, so through every little gap around her body, smoke seeped up toward the open air, choking her throat and stinging her eyes. She did not want to think about what was burning down below or what she was breathing in. There might not be much time. He'd passed out drunk, but for how long? In the smoky dark, her fingers felt for the next ridge of stone and her toes found a hold down below. Then she pulled herself up another few inches. The rough edges cut open her arms, but she ignored the pain and fixed her eyes on the square of sky above her. Stars burned clear and cold above the mountains. There was nowhere to go but up. She felt for the next stone and pulled. Hours later and miles away, a few men took seats at Herbridge's saloon in Elizabethtown. They were the sort of men you found in this part of New Mexico in the year 1870, ready to draw their pistols at the slightest provocation. Here on the edge of the frontier, the margin for error was zero. If you wanted to survive, you had to hone an animal instinct and an animal's willingness to kill. These men in the saloon had survived a long time. A dark cloud hung over their table. The aura of all the men they'd killed just to be sitting here and knocking back glasses of whiskey. The men didn't speak much, just eyeing the room, staying ready, their trigger fingers itching. Suddenly, an indigenous woman burst into the saloon, the cold October air gasping in behind her. She looked to be on the point of collapse. Her clothes were shredded and covered in blood, and she was almost black with soot. The men burst up from the table and helped her to a seat, and she fell into it in a heap. They asked her what had happened, and when the woman told her story, the men did not need to say anything to each other. They understood what needed to be done. They took their guns, got on their horses, 
and rode out to find him. If you made it to the Merino Valley at all, you were already lucky. More likely than not, you'd come from the east and navigated the uncertain trails through the mountains. This snow-capped range in northern New Mexico was called the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, which means the blood of Christ. Rumor had it that Sangre de Cristo were the last words uttered by a priest who'd been killed in a raid, and it's true that the treacherous mountain pass seemed soaked in blood. It required a combination of strength and good fortune to survive the many perils of the pass. A sudden storm might bunch black and menacing around the peaks, then roar down the slope to sweep away all your provisions, beginning your slow death from hunger and thirst. One day, someone in your party might complain of a fever, and soon enough, everyone was white as snow but hot as fire, shivering out their final days in a painful fever dream. And those were just the mild dangers. With every step along the trail, you might be praying to some pitiless predator. A bear that couldn't catch a fish might catch you instead, its claws raking over your gut and exposing your insides. Or a mountain lion might drag you off just to test its reflexes, and with a few shakes of its jaw, your spine would snap. But nothing on the mountain pass terrified traveling parties quite like the raids. The Comanches and Apaches would snatch you off the trail so swiftly and silently, it's as if you were never there at all. All you could do was carry a gun, prepare for death, and trust in God. And that's what Charles Kennedy did when he crossed the Sangre de Cristo range with his wife and young son in 1865. Charles was better prepared than most. The 26-year-old from Tennessee had already spent some years hunting and trapping in the Rocky Mountains, and he could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the predators on the trail. Charles had the body of a bear with hulking shoulders, burly arms and a thick beard, and the cool and alert blue eyes of a mountain lion. What's more, he'd married a woman from the Ute tribe. Her name was Rosa. She was just 14 years old when they married, and she bore him a son. And Charles took Rosa with him through the mountains, almost like a talisman against the raids. Finally, the towering fir trees of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains gave way to an awesome vista, and the Kennedy family began their descent down into the Merino Valley. Charles built a cabin where two trails forked. One of the trails led up the mountainside to the large settlement of Taos, New Mexico, and the other trailed down to a series of smaller settlements. His idea was to run a rest stop for the weary travelers headed in one direction or another, people in need of a hot meal, a stiff drink, and a place to lay their heads. For that first year, most of the guests at Charles and Rosa's rest stop were cowboys and outlaws, men who kicked up their feet by the fireplace and never let their guns out of their sight. It was better not to ask them where they were going or why. But then, in 1867, everything changed 
for this little rest stop in the mountains. And that's when the blood really started to pour. Captain W.H. Moore was the man in charge of Fort Union, a bustling fur trade post on the upper Missouri River. One day, while out riding, Captain Moore came upon an indigenous man on the verge of death. The man was gravely ill, but Moore took him into his care and managed to nurse him back to health. Some time later, now recovered, the indigenous man returned to Fort Union to repay the favour to his healer bringing with him a handful of beautiful rocks that he believed would settle the debt. Moore cradled the rocks in the palm of his hand and let them catch the light and their sheen lit up his eyes. They contained copper. He asked his guest where he'd found them and was told of a place in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. Moore quietly assembled a team to locate the place and stake a mining claim. They had to hurry. It was fall, and if winter came while they were on the slopes, they'd be snowed in and killed. The expedition ventured high into the mountains, the foliage already turning rusty brown, and indeed, there were large deposits of copper to be found up there. And then, one of the men, almost as an afterthought, took out his gold pan and sifted through some gravel in a creek. When he took it out, the pan was glittering. Suddenly, all thought of copper left the men's minds. There was gold in these mountains. But the sharp autumn air reminded them that there was nothing they could do about it now. They would have to wait until spring before they could exploit these riches. The members of the expedition vowed to keep their discovery secret. To mark the place, they carved the words Discovery Tree into the trunk of a ponderosa fir and returned to Fort Union. But the winter was too long and the promise of gold too thrilling to be kept entirely secret. It wasn't long before word of the discovery trickled out. Soon every ambitious man was anxiously waiting for the snow to thaw so that they might strike out on horseback for the mountains. When the spring of 1867 arrived, the trails were suddenly jammed and the mountains filled with prospectors in search of a sparkling motherlode. The arrival of all these newcomers caused other, smaller industries to blossom on the mountainside. Captain Moore started a general store to serve the men and their families, now living in tents and log cabins and rough lumber shacks. Soon enough, Moore had the money to build the first permanent house in the area, and this gold mining camp transformed into a viable city. Moore named it Elizabethtown, after his daughter. Within a couple of years, the population of the city, known to everyone as E-Town, had exploded to over 7,000. It had a church and a schoolhouse, two hotels and a red-light district with seven saloons. Two-storey cabins were joined to the saloons so the hard-drinking men of E-Town could go upstairs into the waiting arms of women for hire. And these men did drink hard. Some of the saloons boasted bars over 200 feet long to accommodate the thirst of E-Town. With all this newfound prosperity, Charles Kennedy, his wife Rosa, and their young son were kept busy at their rest stop cabin about 15 miles outside of town. 
Everyone agreed that the trails were much safer now. There was strength in numbers. Not every Apache was daring enough to take on a couple of stagecoaches and some armed men on horses, and the bears and the mountain lions mostly stayed away. But it wasn't possible to cleanse the Sangre de Cristo mountains of blood. Mysterious dangers still lurked among the pines. It might happen less and less, but every now and then, a traveller struck out on the road to E-Town and was never heard from again. With all the gold dust drifting around, prosperous men from Taos, New Mexico, frequently hit the trail to E-Town to transact business. One day, in the late 1860s, a well-to-do Taos landowner loaded up his pack mules with belongings, saddled up his horse, and undertook the journey. He said goodbye to his friends and gave them a timeline for his return. But when the day came, the landowner hadn't come back. That wasn't too unusual. It wasn't difficult to get waylaid on the trail. But as the days passed, and still he hadn't materialized, his friends grew worried. The landowner knew how to handle himself on the trails. You didn't grow prosperous in this part of the world without an instinct for survival. Something must have happened. His friends gathered together a small search party and spurred their horses along the trail to E-Town. Eventually, they came upon a small cabin at a forking road. Smoke puffed from the chimney. It was a rest stop. The landowner's friends tied their horses up outside and were about to go in when one of them heard something around back. It was the snort of a mule. They went to inspect it and lo and behold, gathered behind the rest stop were their friend's horse and pack mules, still burdened with his belongings. Now, Charles Kennedy, his wife Rosa, and their son had noticed the strangers and come outside. Their friends demanded to know what the hell Charles was doing with the landowner's animals. Charles looked confused. He'd never met the man, he said, never even heard of him. He'd been out on the trail when he came upon these animals, aimlessly wandering around, no owner in sight. His assumption was that Apaches had taken their owner off. Charles had simply salvaged what he'd found. They were his animals now, and if the friends wanted them back, they'd have to make an official claim with the authorities. There was no evidence to the contrary, and when they looked Charles in the eye, they could tell he was serious. His Ute wife and their son stood by his side, the spitting image of a typical mountain family. But still, something didn't sit right about the story. Raiders still terrorized these trails, but why would they just vanish the landowner? Resources were scarce in these parts, and normally the attackers would take the horse and the belongings and slaughter the mules for meat. What's more, there was something unnerving about the family, something none of the search party could quite put their finger on. It was only detectable in the scrawny little boy, no older than eight or nine. A secretive smile played on his lips, 
and he looked on the members of the party with a kind of morbid fascination. It was altogether strange, but it was only a feeling. The party watered their horses and rode back to Taos. They never did find their friend. They just honored him in the way of all pioneers here on the fringes of civilization. They crossed themselves, hoped they wouldn't be next, and went on with their lives. Men like the members of the traveling party weren't wrong when they detected something strange about the Kennedy boy. He did look upon them with a morbid fascination, as if he could see right through their skulls under their skin. But that was perfectly natural for a boy who'd been raised in a house of bones. He and his mother Rose would watch it unfold from beginning to end, powerless to prevent it from happening. The first thing they'd hear was the sound of the hooves steadily approaching down the trail. Then the whinny of the horse would break the air as the traveller dismounted and knocked on the cabin door. The boy's daddy, Charles Kennedy, would answer, side by side with Rosa. Yes, this was a rest stop, Charles would say. We have good food and soft sheets. You won't find anything better on the pass from Taos to Etam. Then the traveller would nod and yawn, and Rosa would serve him a drink while the boy fetched water for the horse. When the boy returned to the cabin, his daddy Charles would be drinking. Maybe the traveller would notice how that set Rosa and the boy on edge, or maybe he'd be too lost in the whiskey himself. But as darkness draped the mountainside and huddled around the cabin, a fresh intensity would begin to gleam in Charles's eyes, like a creature who can see in the night. Rosa would tidy up, not meeting her husband's gaze, but the boy would be weirdly transfixed. Then the guest would turn in for the night, and the boy would go to bed as well. He'd lie there, facing the wall, keenly listening to the sounds of the cabin, waiting for it to begin. Eventually, he'd hear his father's drunk, dragging footsteps as he approached the traveller's bedroom. There was the creak of the door as it opened, and then there was no telling what would happen. Sometimes, there would be a struggle, like two caged animals, all claws and teeth, grunts and screams, and the whole cabin would rumble with the clash. Other times, there would be nothing but silence, as if the traveller had been blown out like a candle and changed into a thread of smoke. But no matter how it happened, the boy's father, Charles Kennedy, would always prevail. He was too big, too strong. He'd been trapping animals all his life. And that's what the rest stop was. Another trap. In the dead of night, while Rosa and the boy pretended to sleep, he'd slaughter his guest and harvest their belongings. Anything valuable, he'd take to a secret spot in the mountains and bury underground. Then it was just a question of the body... In some cases, Charles would bury them whole under the cabin, this quiet rest stop, their final resting place. But sometimes, he would put the bodies on the chopping block, raise an axe high in the air, and hack them into a jumble of limbs. Then he'd feed the body parts to the flames in the stone fireplace. 
The boy would watch the flames, that morbid fascination playing on his face, until the traveller was nothing more than fragments of charred bone. And then the silence of the mountains would be interrupted by the approach of another horse. Someone else was knocking at the door of the House of Bones, looking for somewhere to sleep. The killing might have gone on forever, but something was restlessly stirred in the soul of Charles Kennedy. Maybe it was the close call he'd had about that landowner from Taos, whose horses and mules he'd stupidly kept around the property. Or maybe it was the whiskey. Charles had always been a bottomless pit for booze, but it was getting worse lately. The rage was like a team of horses harnessed to his heart, and it took all his strength to keep them from bucking like broncos. Now the whiskey was wearing him down, and soon he found himself unable to control the wild horses of his rage. One day in October 1870, another traveller arrived at the cabin. After supper, the traveller lounged about the fireplace, conversing with Charles and the nine-year-old boy. He had no idea that the ashes in the fireplace were human remains, the smoke of countless previous guests vanishing up the chimney. But the boy knew. For years now, he'd been living in this house of bones. He could not believe the hypocrisy, how blood bathed these mountains, and no one seemed to notice. The traveller asked Charles if there were any raiders in these parts, and suddenly the joke overwhelmed the boy. He couldn't stand it any longer. He looked right in the eyes of the traveller and said, Can't you smell the man Papa put under the floor? That set the horses loose. Charles reared up from his chair, and the traveller had no time to react before the gun was drawn. In a flash of gunpowder, the round bullet exploded his skull and spewed brains across the wall. Rosa screamed, but Charles wasn't done. Crazed like a kicking horse, Charles picked up the scrawny little boy. As Rosa looked on in helpless horror, Charles swung their son through the air and smashed his head against the rough stones of the fireplace. The boy's skull broke like an eggshell and blood burst over the stones. The tattered little body joined the brainless guest on the floor, both of them dead. A deep silence fell over the house, filled only by the whimpers of Rosa. Charles finished the bottle, and as he did, he went around locking every door and sealing every window of the house so Rosa couldn't leave. Then Charles dragged the two bodies down to the cellar and stacked them like firewood. He cracked open another bottle of whiskey, and soon enough, that was halfway gone. So far, he'd made no attempt to kill his wife. Rosa watched him, hardly even daring to blink, as if she found herself trapped in a pit with a ravenous bear. She didn't know what movement, what word would unleash him again. All she knew is she would be defenceless. But as evening fell, the eyes of the predator drooped. Soon enough, he couldn't drink anymore, and then his head was too heavy to support, and he lapsed into his dreams. Rosa knew this was her chance, 
and that there was only one way to escape. As quietly as she could, she extinguished the fire and squeezed into the chimney, her feet mixing with the hot bones of their guests, and then inch by agonizing inch, she started to climb. When at last Rosa arrived at Herbridge's saloon, bleeding and exhausted, she couldn't know that the first men she'd speak to were already hardened killers. The leader of the group was Clay Allison, a balding man with a long beard and eyes like hammered tin. A former Confederate soldier from Tennessee, Clay had been discharged from the military for his crazy and erratic behavior, too bloodthirsty even for a job killing the enemy. After the war, Clay became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and then went west to make his fortune. His gun was his constant companion. When asked what he did for a living, Clay called himself a shootist. It's true that he'd kill a man over the most minor confrontation, the price of a ferry crossing, the rights to a watering hole. When Rosa told him about the murders at the Kennedy cabin, Clay and his crew mounted their horses and rode the 15 miles out. They found Charles in a stupor, stinking of whiskey. They also found the bones still burning in the fireplace and the bodies in the cellar. Altogether, 21 deaths were attributed to Charles Kennedy. If the murderer weren't so drunk, Clay and his gang might have killed him right there and then. But unlike Charles, they took no pleasure in killing a sleeping man. So they hauled his big body up onto a horse and rode him back to E-Town. At last, the whiskey wore off and Charles awakened to find himself behind bars. In a couple of days, he would appear before a judge, and if he was found guilty, they'd hang him. Charles immediately contracted the services of a lawyer, and the two of them hatched a plan. Out here on the edge of the frontier, the law was mostly a matter of money, not justice. And buried somewhere in the mountains, Charles had a lot of money. All the treasure he'd pilfered from his guests. The lawyer approached the judge with an offer. Get Charles Kennedy out of jail, and you'll be a rich man. Word reached Clay Anderson and his crew that the child killer might see the light of day. That settled it. Clay already regretted not just putting that monster down when he found him at the cabin. Now the idea of Charles escaping justice was like someone spitting in his eye. He rounded up a few friends and galloped to the jail. They found the place almost deserted. Unluckily for Charles, his imprisonment was taking place at the same time as a festival in Taos. Pretty much every young man in E-Town had left for the party, and so there wasn't anybody strong enough to guard him. Clay's gang stormed the jail, guns drawn, and demanded that the prisoner be handed over. No one offered any argument, let alone resistance. The cell was unlocked, and Clay led Charles outside. A small crowd had gathered, nervously observing what Clay planned to do with the prisoner, but a bullet in the head would be too good for Charles Kennedy. Clay holstered his weapon. Instead, he took up a rope and tied one end around Charles's legs and the other end to his horse. 
Then he got in the saddle and spurred the beast. Charles fell back and began to skid along the ground. The street was just packed dirt and crude stones, and it slashed his skin like razor blades as the horse dragged him back and forth. It was a death by a million cuts, and Clay didn't stop until Charles's body was utterly pulped. Then he dismounted, took out his bowie knife, and cut off the killer's head. It came off easily, the spine all twisted, the neck mangled meat. Clay picked up the head by the hair, and it dripped as he carried it over to a member of the crowd. Henry Lambert had been watching this vigilante execution. Once a chef to President Lincoln, Lambert had come west and started a saloon here in E-Town. Now Clay was offering him the head. He wanted Henry to put it on display outside his saloon as a message to others that such mayhem wouldn't be tolerated in a civilized town like this. The head of Charles Kennedy remained on a stake outside Lambert Saloon. In the blazing New Mexico sun, it mummified and the eyes of the killer gazed out upon the town. It watched as the gold in the mountains dried up and it watched as the businesses closed. In just a few years, the 7,000 residents of E-Town would be scattered to the wind and it would be a ghost town. The head of Charles Kennedy watched as people gathered their belongings and packed their mules and embarked into the violence of the mountains. From Podimo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. For early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.